Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas, and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. I wanted to quickly give a shout out to my friends over at Neurotech. They've recently launched a new nootropic formula that's designed to have an anti-stress effect and help one with their sleep. This particular hot chocolate formula is designed to help one unwind after a hard day at work. It contains some pretty unique ingredients such as magnesium glycinate, L-theanine, and some other adaptogenic herbs. You can use the discount code BYB to save 20% off on all Neurotech products. That's BYB to save 20% off. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today, I have a special guest joining me in actually from Melbourne, Joining me today, we have a naturopath, doctor of traditional Chinese medicine, and also a nutritional lecturer. So joining me in, we have Dr. Miranda Miles. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lucas. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for quite a long time, actually. Um, And I'm just going to say, just so everybody knows, you are one of my students in nutritional biochemistry. You are one of my favourites, of course. <laughs> and you can always pick 
the star students who are going to do something. So I'm so pleased to be here and so wrapped with what you are doing and you're creating with your platform. Thank, thank you so much. I, um, I feel humbled to hear that. And also when I talk to people about my experience at university and just what I've gained, what I've learned and stuff like that, I just, I basically say it's the people that I've met and, uh, yeah, I would definitely say you were one of them. You were definitely one of my favorite lecturers there. So, yeah, it's, it was an incredible journey. It was. It's a good journey, and it's it's really great from our perspective to see you know the students that do beautiful things and amazing work, um, particularly in the nutritional and the herbal sphere. Yeah, it's great. It's awesome. Wonderful. Well, maybe uh, Miranda, do you want to let my listeners know a little bit about? your story and your journey got a, a pretty wild. So, <laughs> so it's funny when I was studying at Southern School, so I was there in the 1990s is when I was there and I was fairly determined that I was not going to be interested in doing anything to do with women's bits. I just, it was not, did not interest me at all. And then one of my lecturers who was, she was one of those women who sort of pushed your buttons a little bit and she said to me one day in class, okay, you need to get up and you need to draw the hormonal Um, fluctuations of the cycle um, across a normal 28-day cycle. And I kind of went, oh, all right. And I got up and drew it and I just kind of knew it and it just sort of happened. And I thought, ah, all right, maybe there's something in this women's health, women's hormones for me. Fast forward a couple of years, my period went missing. It was acupuncture that brought it back after two treatments. So then was like, okay, there's something in acupuncture. A bit of a picture is starting to form here. And again, fast forward to sort of when I was in my um, late 30s trying to conceive, nothing happening, couldn't make it work. Um, And so I ended up working very much in the women's health field because of my own fertility issues. Um, Did a couple of rounds of IVF, nothing happened. And then you ended up using donor eggs to create my family. So I'm, I'm very um, passionate about supporting women, supporting couples, supporting any intending parents through IVF, donor egg IVF journeys and, and how to get them there, how to, how to create their families in really beautiful, unique ways. Mm, so it's, that's kind of my personal story. Amazing. Amazing. Mm. Cool. Maybe let's, um, let's dive deep onto, I guess, a little bit around, because I know we both we both studied this um, looking at some of the naturopathic philosophies and I guess we can sort of intertwine this with, um, I guess, where you see things go wrong for patients. Um, so let's mm. let's have a look at this, like the naturopathic philosophies and... and, and yes, well, as you know, the first thing is, is do no harm, which is the same as the Hippocratic Oath that the GPs take and, and anyone in the medical field sort of looks at do no harm. But I think... Sometimes where it can go really wrong is that patients are not empowered to be their own health advocates. They are more told what they should be doing rather than educated as to why they should be doing those things for their own health. Mm. And they're also not, from a, I guess from a Western medicine perspective, when blood tests are taken as an example, they're not educated how to read those bloods or what those bloods mean or they're not told what actually has been tested. So, so often a patient will come in to me and say, I've had all my bloods done, everything's come back fine and normal. And it's like, but you still feel awful. 
yeah, 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 but there's nothing wrong in my blood. It's like, yeah, but you still feel awful. And and so many patients will say to me that their specialist or their GP or, or whoever has said, it's all in your head. Here, here's an antidepressant. See you later. Yeah. So I think that's sometimes quite a, can be quite a mismanagement of individual patients. Now, I will just say I come from a line of GPs, so I don't, there's no disrespect to Western medicine and GPs here at all. Um, there are fabulous practitioners in every field of medicine. So I just want to put that out there. But I do see that there's a lot of mismanagement. And really, the poor GPs only have five or seven minutes with a patient. They don't have a lot of time. So I see that as a real issue in terms of patients understanding what's been tested, what's been done, and what their blood test results actually mean. Mm. Um, Yeah, I think that's a really big problem. Yeah, and I think part of that is... um having a look at like the differences in terms of um, suppressing symptoms versus addressing the root cause, which is often, you know, we talk about it a lot on our social media channels and things like that. But let's, I want to hear like some, some things you found like across your journey in terms of it's been like how it's been a wild ride for you to identify the root cause of someone's disease. Like let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Mm. So, I think, and the root cause is obviously the absolute key to what we are trying to do. And uh, I do like to do testing. Uh, I like to do functional medicine testing. So the the blood test results are fabulous, but I want to look at those. I want to see them. I don't want to just go, well, um, you know, the, the specialist or the GP says that everything's fine and it's potentially not because we look at those optimal levels versus just being within range. Um, One of the things I see a lot is that uh, thyroid issues are commonly missed um, and the root cause to why there is thyroid issues. So a patient of mine recently had through the roof reverse T3 levels, uh, which was then suppressing the T3 levels. And, of course, it's the liver that converts the inactive T4 to the active T3 and also converts the reverse T3. And we were sort of looking at, well, what's what's going on here? Why is the reverse T3 so high? So we're working on trying to bring that reverse T3 down, but in actual fact, it was a problem with his liver. Wow. It was a fatty liver issue that was causing the problems with the t4 conversion to t3 and rather than converting to t3 was converting to reverse t3 in really super high levels so he was presenting as hypothyroidism in its truest form but it had completely been missed completely been missed because they looked at tsh didn't look at anything else didn't knew that the reverse t3 was elevated but didn't look any further into why that was actually happening Mm. maybe let's let's break that down for my listeners explain to Mm. them what is TSH, T4, T3, and that reverse T3, which rarely... Mm. Mm. So TSH is thyroid-stimulating hormone, and that's produced by the um, pituitary gland in your brain. And then the TSH tells the thyroid what to do, right? So when you're getting a TSH level tested in your blood, which is what is commonly tested, that's testing your brain's communication with your thyroid, Right, so the pituitary gland sits somewhere in here, you know, right down in the middle of your head, using the TSH to tell your thyroid what to do. The thyroid then produces 
T4, which is one of our thyroid hormones, and T3, which is our second thyroid hormone. T4, we make about 90, I've seen different statistics on this actually. T4, we make in levels of anywhere between 80 to 93% of our total thyroid hormone pool is somewhere between, is T4 at that, um, between 80 to 93%, right? T3, which is our active thyroid hormone, we only make that anywhere between 7 to 20%, okay? And the reason we do that is so that we don't go into a hyperdrive hyperthyroid state then once the thyroid has made the, the t3 and the t4 they get released into the bloodstream go to the liver the liver plays around with them and says cool we're going to convert the inactive t4 to more active t3 based on needs and requirements so that this person has enough active t3 which is the main hormone that stimulates every cell in our body and pretty much every cell in our body has thyroid hormone receptors. Mm -hmm. So when there's a problem, we can have a myriad of different symptoms, depression, constipation, or digestive disorders. Um, it can be constipation, it can be diarrhea, fertility issues, mood disorders, all sorts of things go wrong, right? So the liver really needs to be doing a good job to be properly converting T4 to T3. Mm. It also, in normal circumstances, everyday circumstances, the T4 also converts to reverse T3. Okay, and reverse T3 is an inactive version of the T3, the one we want, right? And as long as you're just doing, making sort of normal levels of reverse T3, the body goes, cool, yep, no worries, we can deal with that doesn't have an impact but in certain conditions the reverse t3 goes too high mm. right the, the liver is converting too much t4 to too much reverse t3 and that happens in situations where there's high or low cortisol um, high adrenaline um, iron deficiency or a lot of chronic inflammatory conditions mm. the reverse t3 goes up and then What's important here is the ratio between the reverse T3 and the T3. So the reverse T3 is like an inactive version of the T3. And if it's up too high, it completely blocks the action of the T3, mm -hmm. right? That ratio should be between 1.2 and 2.2. Ideally, I like the reverse T3 to T3 ratio to be, sorry, the T3 to reverse T3 ratio to be at two. If it's below that, then it's like, nah, there's problems. Mm. There's, there's major issues. And in some patients, I will see that ratio as, as low as 0.6. Mm. So it's like there's just not enough active thyroid hormone to deal with the reverse T3. It's blocking the whole process. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. The, the thing that came to my mind is um, just how rarely doctors will check reverse T3, right? Like it's rarely measured. Rarely measured. In fact, T3 and T4 are rarely measured. Mm -hmm. You know, you get TSH being measured all the time and that's because TSH is because it's the regulator. So it's the one that regulates all of the thyroid hormones. So it's considered that if the TSH is in range, then everything else will be fine. But even the range itself, like the range is not, and again, it's lab dependent, but the range itself is somewhere between 0.5 to 5.5. Well, they're old reference ranges. 
the reference range has changed in 2003. Yeah. You know, the upper end of the scale should be about 3.2. Um, and the ideal, even within that TSH, TSH range, should be 0.5 to 1.5. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so generally speaking, though, if if the TSH is within that range, then no further testing gets done, not even T3 or T4. So bad. It, it's Well, it's just a bit frightening because you're missing what is potentially a root cause. Exactly. So the thyroid may be the re- root cause to somebody's fertility issues yeah. or it may be the root cause to their constipation or their sleep problems or their depression or their lack of energy or their dry skin, dry hair, or hair that's falling out. Mm. You know? And so that root cause is absolutely being missed. Mm. And then you've got to look at, well, why, it's ha- why is it happening anyway? Well, so you can dig a bit deeper. <laughs> well, let's, 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 let's look into some of those whilst we're on the topic of thyroid health. Mm. And let's look at the interplay now with some of the nutrients. I know you mentioned iron before, um, but mention, let's explore some of the other you know, cofactors and things that make it, that actually make uh, T3 and... Mm. So when we're, when we're making T3 and T4, we need to have really good amounts of tyrosine, the amino acid tyrosine. Uh, that makes up a great proportion of a protein chain called thyroglobulin, right? And so thyroglobulin is this big protein chain that has lots of little tyrosines dotted within it. And... We need that thyroglobulin with the tyrosine so that iodine can attach to that tyrosine, right? So basically what you have is when when we are making our thyroid hormones, we basically collect iodine, right? Um, But we can't attach iodine to tyrosine. We attach iodide. So we have to go through an iodination process, which requires iron. So we need iron to put iodine in the right form so that it can attach to the tyrosine to make the thyroid hormone in the first place, Mm. right? And so we'll have a little tyrosine with one iodine attached to it. Then we'll get another little tyrosine with two iodine attached. So we've got T1 hormone and T2, meaning tyrosine with one iodide, tyrosine with two, and then they couple together to make T3 and T4. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Very, yeah. Yeah, So so right there and then you need tyrosine, you need iron, and you need iodine Mm. or iodide, iodine, iodide, yeah? Then to, so we've made our T3 and T4, then the thyroid gland releases the T3 and T4 into the bloodstream and then that's the, the thyroid hormones travel around the blood attached to another protein called holotranscobalamin and with that you need um, vitamin A. You've got to have some vitamin A in there to help with the transport of the thyroid hormones around the body as well. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot to it. Then when you're looking at that conversion of T4 to T3, right, so that's the conversion we were talking about before, you need predominantly selenium. So selenium is a cofactor for the enzyme that makes that conversion happen, and you need zinc. Mm. So there's, what's that, tyrosine, iodine, iron, 
selenium, zinc, vitamin A, at least six nutrients as cofactors, not only as cofactors, as important elements to actually make the thyroid hormones in the first place. Mm. But guess what happens if you've got low T4? Do you think we, you know, and it, when, when you've got a blood test and the blood test says, all right, we've got low T4, and we're, we're, when we're talking low T4, if I see T4 below 14 in a Western society, and the range is usually 9 to about 25, if I see it below 14, it's like, mm, okay, we've got some issues here because when we've got iodized salts, you should not be getting T4 below um, 14 because iodine is the most important nutrient to help boost that T4. So T4 being low is a sure indicator that iodine is too low. Right. But what I like to do is then get a urine test done to make sure that that's correct. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, making sure you're covering your bases. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's funny because um, now I'm starting to see the links between those that suffer from iron deficiency, all the symptoms that they complain about, like the fatigue, a lot of it may be linked back to the low thyroid. That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So again, what's the root cause? We're, we're, let's break it down to is the root cause the fact that the iron is low in the first place that then is interfering with the ability to make thyroid hormones or is there a thyroid issue in the first place that's being impacted by the iodine, like the iron? It's... It's such a discovery process to try and figure it out as to exactly what is the root cause. Mm. But then you even break it down further and go, okay, there's also thyroid antibodies that can be attacking. So you can have all of those symptoms and it might be that there's thyroid antibodies. And this is another thing that is just so seldomly tested. And, and if you've quite, got, it's still quite common as well, right? Really common. Yeah. Really common. So again, we look at it from a fertility perspective, um, which is obviously that you know a big area that I work in. So I'll be going if if I've got patients that are not um, conceiving within sort of six to twelve months of of trying, um, I want to know what's going on with your thyroid hormones, because if you've got sorry your thyroid antibodies, because if you have thyroid antibodies, then you've got an immune problem going on. Mm. Yeah, and that can come back to well, what's the root cause of that? That can come back to what's going on in your gut. <laughs> yeah, and then we it often always comes back to gut and liver as root cause elements, as you know. You know, from a practical perspective, that's what we actually see. Mm. And so the reason that this person may not be, or the, this conception may not be occurring, may be because of thyroid antibodies, which may be because of the gut. Mm. <laughs> or some other autoimmune issue. And then also the link there between thyroid hormones and progesterone and, and estrogen. Do you want to sort of expand on that? Yeah, so then what's, so what's really interesting then is that the way I, I really like to, to, to explain this is the HPO, HPA, HPT axis, right? So the hypothalamus tells the pituitary what to do and then the pituitary tells your thyroid, your adrenals, and your ovaries what to do, right? So when you're menstruating properly, ovulating properly, when you've got no stress, and when your thyroid's, you know, when your metabolism's doing what it should be doing, the pituitary is kind of sitting there going, cool, everything's good in my world, I don't need to do anything. But as soon as one of those things go out, out of whack, right? So the pituitary's sitting there going, oh my goodness, 
Lucas is going through enormous amounts of stress. So I'm going to focus on making sure that his adrenals are surviving. In fact, I'm going to use a female as an example. It's going to be a better example. (laughs) So I'm going to say I'm stressed, right? So my pituitary is going to go, oh, my God, I've got to get Miranda out of stress. So the pituitary, rather than focusing on ovarian, adrenal and thyroid, suddenly goes, all I need to focus on is adrenals because that's fight or flight. She's got to run from the woolly mammoth. So let's help her run and pump everything into adrenal support, right, for that fight-flight response. So in the process of that happening, so think about from an evolutionary perspective, what were we stressed about? 500 years ago, what were we stressed about? We were stressed about where our next meal would come from. We were stressed about getting away from the woolly mammoth. And let's talk 2,000 years ago. Um, So given that we just don't know how, or we didn't know how we were going to survive, then everything was all about running, running from that woolly mammoth. So the last thing you need to be doing is A, burning all your fat stores. So thyroid is kind of ignored. We're not going to, the pituitary goes, I'm not going to worry about what's going on with the thyroid. I'm going to actually switch that off because I don't want to metabolize. I don't want to burn all my fat stores just in case we don't get to eat for the next day and a half so that we've got some reserves there to rely on and so Miranda can keep running, right? But the other thing that will happen is that when your cortisol goes up and your adrenaline is going up, that basically switches off ovulation Mm. because when you're stressed, you don't want to have a baby. Baby's just going to slow you down. While you're trying to run from that woolly mammoth, a baby is going to slow you down. So you don't want to be menstruating. You don't have to deal with periods, yeah, and you don't want to be having a baby while you're stressed. So from a a hormonal perspective, the pituitary goes nut. We're shutting all of that down or we're down-regulating ovulation. We're down-regulating the menstrual cycle, again, so that Miranda can just survive and get through this stressful period. Mm. Yeah? That makes sense. Now, the interesting thing is you need cortisol, right, to make estrogen progesterone. Wow. Right? You've got to have a level of cortisol to help you make those hormones. But once it starts getting too high, then it starts to go, no, 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 shut down, shut down, shut down, shut down. Mm. Yeah, so it's that really finely tuned balance between having some cortisol but not having too much. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think what's really critical here is like, as you mentioned, a lot of these hormones are, they all work together. Um, and what's critical is that people actually get them checked and assessed by somebody who knows how to interpret them, mm. um, you know, in these functional ranges and, and understands the role of nutrition, the role of the microbiome, the role of the thyroid. Um, mm-hmm. And stress and understanding, because every patient's different, right? Like you've, you've probably seen ones that have completely weird, um, let's say cortisol or estrogen, like, yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's, it's, it's funny because when you, you get some really weird results and you're sitting there just going, what is going on here? Like how is this? This is not, this is not what I expected from A, the symptom picture, Um and be their history. So then sometimes it's also like, well, do I treat the results 
or do I treat the symptoms and the person sitting in front of me? And I will always treat the person, always treat the person, because the symptom, uh, the, 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 the blood test results are never 100% accurate, right? And plus, hormones are changing every day. You know, every day your estrogen and progesterone is different. If we test thyroid on day one compared with day seven, it will be slightly different. But what you want is a history of blood so you can see general patterns. Mm. Um, but I've got some weird blood tests going on at the moment. It's like, what is happening with this person? Like cortisol's all over the place. Progesterone, it still looks like they're ovulating. Given their stress level, they probably shouldn't be, but they are. So it's also you know, really taking the individual and going, what is happening for this person? Yeah. Why is it happening to them in this way right now? Mm. Yeah. And it'll be different next week. <laughs> yeah. That's great. I think you've, um, you've outlined that really well. What I want to do, Miranda, mm. is sort of segue into, because um, I've never had a Chinese medicine um, specialist on the show or anyone who's studied that. And I know that he was like, I used to duck out of school and I used to go down to China books and just read their books after school with one of my mates. Um, so let's, let's sort of dive into traditional Chinese medicine a little bit of, and about how they view the body and how they mm. perceive the body. So it's it's really interesting the the traditional Chinese medicine which has been around for, for you know some texts say three thousand years some texts say five thousand years who really knows but it's a long time <laughs> um, and they view the body very very differently the body is viewed as a whole as a whole unit um, and. It's almost like the body is a reflection of the universe, a reflection of their environment. So in Chinese medicine, the body um, reflects what's going on in, in the actual environment as well. And everything is a microcosm of the macrocosm. So what your body is doing is a response to the environment. Um, and what they believe is to regain balance, you've got to achieve the balance between the internal body organs and then the external elements of earth, fire, water, wood, and metal, right, which is otherwise explained. Earth is spleen, uh, fire is heart, water is kidneys, uh, water is kidneys, wood is liver, and metal is lungs. Mm. So they're the five major organs that Chinese medicine revolves around. But it's actually not talking about the organs per se it's talking about meridians mm. so the chinese look at um how chi runs through the meridians that is uh, kind of dominated by those organ systems right wow. um and then they also talk about so you know, meridians are like channels okay and and energy or chi can get stuck in particular um, meridians. So the kidney meridian, as an example, is really important for estrogen and progesterone, for hormonal regulation. But they don't talk about estrogen and progesterone. Yeah. Right? They talk about the kidney yin or the kidney yang, yep. right? Mm. Um, and yang, progesterone is more yang and estrogen is more yin, all right? But everything has a bit of yin and a bit of yang. And these are the equal and opposite forces that create everything in our bodies. So 
we have kidney yin and kidney yang, right? And as I said, yin is more estrogen, yang is more progesterone. But progesterone has a yin element to it as well. It's yeah. just dominantly yang. So they're always trying to balance the yin and the yang of everything within the body. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Mm. One thing one thing that I found with um, when I was diving into some of these TCM herbs, looking at um, things that can rebuild the jing, like the kidney jing. Mm. Mm. You know, we got the adaptogenic mushrooms like cordyceps, reishi, things like that. Yeah, exactly. So the, the kidney jing is then the kidney essence. So that's even beyond the yin and the yang or the chi. There's this, this essence that's kind of like the, the steam that is created when the yin and the yang are in balance and this steam is created and that's then what rises to help in the formation of an egg or a child or, or fertility. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's also that, that really adaptogenic sort of picture as well. It's so fascinating. They don't look at disease as, you know, you have a thyroid issue, right? The Chinese look at patterns of disharmony and what they're trying to do is find where that pattern of disharmony is. So one person can be, can have fertility issues because of a kidney yin and yang problem. Another person can have fertility issues because of a kidney jing or a kidney essence problem, or they can have fertility issues because of a spleen issue, right? They're not making enough blood. The spleen makes blood. Or they can have fertility issues because their liver chi is too stagnant, so energy is not moving. So a single issue can have, you know, six or seven different patterns of disharmony. Right. And they refer to them as syndromes. So they're patterns of disharmony or syndromes that creates a what we refer to as a disease. Yeah. But they don't talk about disease. There's no such thing as thyroid issues. Mm. It's a some sort of internal imbalance. And then we use Chinese herbs. So I'm not a Chinese herbalist. I'm a Western herbalist, um, but I am an acupuncturist. So we use acupuncture needles, fine, tiny, thin pins, to move the chi or get the yin and yang balance right and bring the body back into balance, back into harmony. Right. Awesome. Fascinating. So since we're since we've just sort of you just mentioned a little bit on um, acupuncture, mm. I'd, love to, I'd love to sort of dive deep into. Um, yeah, I had one of these questions was any standout acupuncture studies that you've that you've seen. Yeah. So when I was doing my acupuncture was in which my. My final year was 2010 at RMIT and I did the Masters in Acupuncture. And I did my thesis on the role of acupuncture in IVF. Um, And back then there was a lot of really, really quite good research that said, yep, it increases outcomes and improves um, IVF success rates, particularly if you have acupuncture 24 hours before your IVF transfer and 24 hours after your IVF transfer, right? Um, and there was a, a thing called the Paulus protocol that everybody sort of jumped on. Um, and that was a, the Paulus protocol was a particular set of acupuncture points that you used pre IVF and then post IVF, right? And had a really good success rate. After that, though, there was a lot of sort of between 2010 and 2019, there was a lot of other research that wasn't really able to replicate those findings as clearly. So it was kind of like, really, does it do it? Does it not? There was a lot of conjecture as to whether it did. And then in 2019, 
Hollander et al. did a, um, a, a meta-analysis um, and it's called the point of influence and what is the role of acupuncture in in vitro fertilization outcomes. And what they found, so this is a, a meta-analysis and it found that acupuncture is effective to increase live births by 30% wow. when acupuncture was compared with no treatment and that was in nine trials of 1,980 women. So not a huge subject pool, but, you know, not tiny either, One, you know, almost 2,000 women. And they go on to say the efficacy is unclear, the efficacy of the acupuncture is unclear, but they did find some really important elements. They concluded that acupuncture does not increase the risk of miscarriage Right, so that's great. They found acupuncture compared to no treatment at all is effective for increasing the clinical pregnancy rate by 28 to 32%. So this is of, of um, live births. Wow. Uh, sorry, no, the clinical pregnancy rate, sorry, was increased by 28 to 32%. Of course, we don't just want a clinical pregnancy, we want a live birth. Yeah. So they went on to say that the ongoing pregnancy rate was increased by 42%. And then the live birth rate was increased by 30%, wow. right? But they also did look at a couple of other elements. It was found that acupuncture was 42% more effective to increase live births when women had previously failed a cycle, right? So if they'd done IVF, they'd failed a cycle, then they started to do acupuncture in conjunction with their IVF the success rate was even greater, which was really quite fascinating. Um, and what they also said was that the success of the acupuncture is actually dose dependent, like anything. You don't just take 25 milligrams of zinc once and expect miracles to happen, right? <laughs> you can't just have one acupuncture session and think, cool, I'm going to increase my life birth rate by 30% now. It doesn't happen like that. It is a dose dependent process also. And they, they found that you really wanted to be having between nine to 12 sessions um, for these outcomes to be significant. Right. Um, and that would significantly increase the odds of a live birth, live birth in observational studies. Mm. And that's kind of really interesting. And, oh, sorry, it also included the pre-IVF acupuncture, so within 24 hours of the um, transfer and 24 hours after, so pre and post mm. IVF as well. And that, I thought that was really interesting because of, uh, in naturopathic medicine, we're talking a lot about three months of preconception care, yeah? And so nine to 12 sessions, one a week, you're kind of heading towards that 12 weeks of preconception care. So it fits in beautifully with the philosophy that we sort of talk about, you know, in preparing for pregnancy as well. So it was really, it was excellent um, Excellent research to, yeah. to sort of say, no, it is actually. Ah, and the other bit that they said in it was that, yes, using the, a, a modified version of the original Paulus protocol. So that was kind of nice tying it back to his research as well. Right. Mm. So I don't know. I mean, I, don't, I personally don't know much about um, acupuncture, but I, I assume there would be certain key trigger points that would be almost applicable to to 
Yeah, what? there's a yeah, there's it's kind of like, you know, in um in many of our nutritional scripts, right? When we're writing a nutritional script, we're pretty much always going to put something like zinc, B6 and magnesium in, yeah? It, there's there's not too many times that you don't put those in because they're the three nutrients that are really important in so many enzymatic reactions. Yeah, zinc's involved in over 200 enzymatic reactions and magnesium in over 300. Mm -hmm. So we have the same thing with acupuncture. There's a couple of really key points that there's not too many scripts that I do that don't have those points. And, and there's a couple around the ankles that are the kidney points, kidney three, kidney six, spleen six. Um, they're all hormone regulators. And then a really beautiful one on the top of the head up here, which is do 20. And that just regulates the whole HPO, HPA, HPT axis. It's just beautiful. One, the one above the head is what? Do, do, do 20, do you? Yeah. Do, yeah. Do you 20. And it's kind of from the ears right up there. It's very, it's very tender in a lot of people. It's a beautiful point. And then I also use this one here, which is called Yin Tang, which is kind of loosely translates as the shut up point. <laughs> <laughs> so I was trying to tell women who are trying to conceive, shh, 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 shh stop talking, shh, quieten that mind because stress interferes with pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so I'd imagine obviously you'd, you'd be combining a lot of um, a lot of modalities. Really, like that's the difference is that you've, you're sort of merging a lot of these um, practices and then basically leveraging the best from each form of medicine. Like you're leveraging perhaps the some of the well known um, TCM herbs like um, Shudi Huang, things like that, and then. Mm. Yeah, you're just merging everything to get, uh, together to bring the best possible outcome to the patient. That's right. That's right. And, and come up with the best possible plan for the individual person. Um, you know, and sometimes that does look like, okay, I need you to have, we need to do weekly acupuncture. Or sometimes it's like, no, you know, you're not going to do a transfer for a little while. So let's just focus on getting nutrition. Because remember, fertility is just a reflection of your health anyway. Yeah. Right. And most of the time. I will say most of the time, um, you know, sometimes there are adverse effect, uh, effects where you can't change the fertility, like no ovaries or no, you know, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But generally speaking, fertility is a reflection of your overall health. So sometimes it's let's just get your overall health right. And then other times it's like, right, let's really focus on, you know, some fertility yeah. um, elements. Mm. Cool. What about let's sort of um let's sort of segue and discuss a little bit on uh, the microbiome because obviously mm. we as naturopaths love to talk about the gut. Love to talk about poo. <laughs> I'd love to let's sort of um let's dive deep into I guess some microbiome related research that's sort of been pretty. Yeah. So the, I'll, I'm gonna I'll talk to you about that one. In that I found a really beautiful. Um, systematic review for endometriosis and, and the microbiome. But the other thing is when we're talking about the microbiome, yeah, we talk about the gut microbiome and we used to think the uterus was pretty um, sterile, not much happened in the uterus, but we do have a uterine microbiome as well. And so it's really important that the uterine microbiome is fabulous and where it should be in fertility as well, because if you've got the wrong 
bugs in the uterus, then again, you've got this whole immune fight going on. Wrong bugs means we're going to have some other bugs that are trying to fight those bugs, yeah? And if you've got this whole war going on between bugs in your uterus, then a little embryo that's trying to implant in that wall, in the, in the uterine wall, can get caught in that crossfire of this fighting that's going on and implantation may not occur. And implantation is not just a specific point in time, right? You don't just, right, there's the embryo and it's implanted. Implantation is a process that is across time, right? And that can be weeks. Mm-hmm. So if you've got this uterine microbiome fight going on, then that little embryo, it, it, if it gets caught in the crossfire, is at grave risk of not actually being able to implant. So the uteri- uterine microbiome is just as important as the gut microbiome. Mm. Um, and again, because I work in a lot in women's health and fertility and, and hormonal health, what I found was some um, some fabulous research, well, I think it's fabulous, um, on the the etiology and the pathogenesis of endometriosis. Like we don't really understand exactly what goes wrong uh, or what's the cause of endometriosis. There's lots of theories around it. Um, But what has been found is there's this complex bi-directional interaction between endometriosis and the microbiome. So the review is called Endometriosis and the Microbiome, a systematic review. It was done by a bloke called Leonardi et al. in 2019. Yep. Um, and I can give you all of those um, those references if you want them, Lucas. Um, and it's a really fascinating area of research where endometriosis appears to be associated with an increased presence of pre- proteobacteria is one. Enterobacteria is another one. Streptococcus species, um, the E. coli sort of species, um, and the phylum Firmicutes and the genus Gardnerella also appear to have an association with endometriosis. Um, so I'm just going to talk you through some of this because it's really fascinating. The proteobacteria, that's a major phylum of gram-negative bacteria. It includes the um, E. coli species, the Enterobacter, Morganella, species, Citrobacter, Klebsiella, Salmonella, um, Helicobacter, and many others, right? So proteobacteria is like this um, group, this class, um, and they, they're considered to be gram-negative bacteria. What does that mean? Well, the, the big thing with gram-negative bacteria, gram bacteria is they've been found, A, to be elevated in endometriosis, but B, they produce an endotoxin, called lipopolysaccharide, LPS, yeah, yeah, LPSs, um, which then, which is an endotoxin, yeah, and that causes inflammation and irritation to the gut lining, leading to those IBS-type symptoms which are commonly experienced in endo. So, so many women with endo will come to me and say, oh, and I've got IBS, and it's actually been, their endo has been misdiagnosed as IBS, right? So they get the diarrhea, sorry, the constipation before their period and then diarrhea with their period, really, really common. Um, And that can be A, because of the endometrial lesions that are attaching to the bowel wall and causing the diarrhea at the time of the menstrual cycle, or it can be due to these LPSs Mm. that are caused by the proteobacteria. 
yeah, the gram-negative bacteria. So what that leads to is those IBS-type symptoms, diarrhea, bloating, gastrointestinal pain, but also the LPSs, the lipopolysaccharides, promote the onset and the progression of the endolesions, the endometriosis lesions. So it's, yeah, it's really nuts. And I think this is something that is really new to be, or 2019, to be looked at. Um, The other thing is that E. coli, which is, you know, a, a bacteria that we commonly have in our gut, but it overgrows. We commonly see that in that dysbiosis leaky gut sort of picture. And this is the other thing that's really fascinating is the E. coli strains or the Escherichia strains and pathogens, they produce high levels of beta-glucuronidase. Now, beta-glucuronidase is an enzyme that we need to help package up estrogen and estrogen metabolites, tie a big bow on the box and send the estrogen out in your poo, right? So you've got to have beta-glucuronidase to produce the box to put the estrogen metabolites in and tie the bow. But if beta-glucuronidase is too high, it actually undoes the bow, Mm. right? And it lets the estrogen metabolites be unpacked and recirculate back into the system, which then appears like estrogen dominance. Crazy. Now, endometriosis is considered generally speaking, an estrogen-dominant condition. Mm. It may not mean, though, that you're producing high amounts of estrogen. So, so often I'll do a Dutch Plus test, right, a dried urine test for comprehensive hormones, and this patient has endometriosis. I just want to see what the hormones are doing so that I know how to treat them. And often the production of their estrogen is low. But the problem is that they're unpacking it. The beta-glucuronidase is then unpacking it and allowing the estrogen to circulate back into the system, which may not be getting picked up, Mm. right? So it's still estrogen dominant, but it's a different process that's going on. Mm. Um, So that's where the the, um, E. coli sort of species are overproducing the beta-glucuronidase, which is making the estrogen picture worse. Mm. It's quite fascinating when you look at it and go, oh, my goodness, it all comes back to the gut or a lot of it comes back to the gut. Well, when you, mm. when you explain it like that, you're basically step by step. That just makes sense right now. Like you're looking at certain bacteria that's going to affect uh, beta-glucuronidase, beta-glucuronidase and then that's going to affect estrogen clearance. That's right. Now, yeah, so the, and that's a perfect way of saying it. So by in, by impacting that beta-glucuronidase, you're impacting estrogen clearance. You're not getting rid of those estrogens. They're circulating back in the system and, and exacerbating the endometriosis picture, which is considered high estrogen. Does the meta-analysis look at some of the causes of the high bacteria? Yes. Well, this study itself looked at it a little bit. So things like enterobacteria and strep, um, the streptococcus species, of course, they overgrow due to low stomach acid or PPIs, so proton pump inhibitors, poor digestive juices. Um, If there's slow bowel motility, that can cause the streptococcus and the um, enterobacter to elevate. And then you get the constipation that we commonly see in endo. And that can be bloating and that really typical endo belly. Have you heard of the endo belly? 
Yeah, the stomach might be flat in the morning, but by, you know, sort of six o'clock at night, they look like they're nine months pregnant. Um, and that's typically due to bloating associated with the endo. Um, and that can be caused by some of these species overgrowth as well. Yeah, it's really fascinating. So it's a really, it's complex. It's a very complex sort of bi-directional process that's that's going on. With the... Uh- maintaining the the uterine uh, microbiome what sort of uh protocols or modalities would you be looking for in terms of actually rebuilding that diversity mm. so the, the way i sort of approach it is whatever's going in the gut is pretty much what's going to be going on in the uterus yeah because it's all kind of one big long tube what's happening in your mouth is all the way down through the the entire gastrointestinal tract out through the vagina and out through the bum and you know pretty much that's it so that's that's sort of how i approach it to get the uterine microbiome tested is um it's not it's not commonly done like it's not something that we commonly do some of the um fertility specialists will get it tested we can get it done but i my approach is sort of okay let's just look at the entire microbiome picture as to what's happening yeah yeah and look at some of the good species amazing Mm. amazing all right well what about um just in terms of my final question to you miranda is i guess having a look at the future of medicine (laughs) (laughs) it's such an interesting one so I'm going to go back for a second and look at the past of medicine. So my dad was a GP, my grandfather was a GP, and then my great-grandfather was a GP, and I go back centuries of GPs. And my great-grandfather, the, the, the things that were in his toolkit was homeopathy, right? That homeopathy and, and herbal medicine were massive years ago. They weren't quackery. They were the mainstream, and then it kind of... Homeopathy. <laughs> Right here, I've got acid phos for those watching in. I've Love it. Phosphoric acid right now. It's beautiful. And that was that was such a big thing. Homeopathy was so big and that's only, you know, three or four generations ago. And then that changed and my dad was very Western medicine. There was, you know, when I told him I was going to study naturopathy, he put his hands on his hips and said, well, we'll have a lifelong conflict then, won't we? So, okay, yeah, probably. Um, So where I see it now, I don't know. I think even since I was studying and naturopathy was still kind of considered your last, your last chance. You know, people would come into my office and say, you're my last chance. It's like, oh, no pressure. I've been everywhere. You're my last chance. That's changed as well now. We're more first line or, you know, a lot of people go to naturopaths as their first line medical um, support now. So I hope to see that keep going and that integrative functional approach keep going. Western medicine is brilliant for that acute treatment, right? It's brilliant for surgeries. It's brilliant for, you know, rotational plasty where you can turn an ankle into a knee or osteoodontokeratoprothesis where you can restore sight with a tooth, you know, amazing technology that can happen with science and um, surgery. Mm. But that's preventative medicine that longer-term health, I think, really is coming back to us. Um, you know, again, just with my dad, he was the 
anaesthetist. He was the baby deliverer. He was the man who stitched up your cut finger or mended your broken arm. But now in terms of obstetrics and gynaecology, you have specialists in that area. You have specialist anaesthetists. But back then, you like my dad did all that. The local GP did all that. Mm. So where are we heading now? I don't know. What do you think? Where do you think we're going? Well, I'm I'm similar to you in the in the sense that I, I'd love to see things go further into um, diagnostics and understanding root cause, mm. like addressing addressing root cause, but then integrating fancy technology like the Dutch test. And mm. like these crazy biohacks that I talk about to, to, to sort, of, <laughs> sort of, you know, to understand the body and just to um, really build up self-awareness for the patient and also build up, um, make the patient feel empowered. I think that's, yes. that's what I really want to see is like, I want to give the, we don't want to be telling the patient exactly this is what you have to do. We just want to be there to guide them, to give them the tools, the knowledge that they need to then take their own health into their own hands sort of thing. That's that's how I see it. Yeah, and a good example of that is, you know, a patient will come to me and say, I don't understand why I have to come off gluten. Can you explain it to me? So rather than just saying come off gluten, wheat and dairy and sugar, giving them the explanation as to why so that they are empowered to make that choice. Mm. They're also empowered that if they choose to eat gluten and they wind up with diarrhea for two days, that's their choice as long as they know that that's what's going to happen and it's not good for their health in in the long term. So I guess it's about helping helping people to understand their bodies. Yeah. Right? Rather than and, and the reasons why we are giving X, Y, and Z advice and what impact we're hoping that will have on their health. Now, sometimes you can give give some advice and it's it's it doesn't work. It's not right. So then you have to go deeper. What was the root cause? What have I missed? Um it's yeah, it's always about empowering the patient and never making the patient feel guilty. Mm. That's the other thing. Guilty, guilty. Yeah. In what sense? In what sense? So sometimes, um, like I will have, I've had patients come in and say to me, um, I know you told me not to eat Uh, gluten while I'm pregnant because of X, Y, and Z, but I did, I couldn't help it. Now I feel really guilty. It's like, don't worry about it. It Like what we're, because the guilt over eating whatever it was, is worse. far worse. Worse, yeah, yeah, yeah. Than eating the thing in the first place. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, if you're gonna eat it, eat it, love it, enjoy it, move on. Yeah, yeah. Don't get stuck in the oh my god, you know what have I caused? Well, it's also it's it's sort of linked in with that orthorexic behaviour amongst us at uni and stuff. Like, I mean, I've caught myself out millions of times. Like, you know, and I'm aware of it. I'm aware of it. Sometimes I have to pull back and be like, all right, so. Just be a normal human for once, you know, just like, who cares? Let loose. Yeah. Like, that's the harm in being super healthy chronically is going to destroy you long term over taking little breaks and just, you know, letting loose for once sort of. That's right. That's right. And yeah, and the stress over it if you let loose. And I see that a lot with fertility again, you know, because if people are trying to conceive and they've been trying to conceive for a long time and then they go out and have a glass of wine, um, they suddenly think, oh, they've undone all of that work. It's like it, it's like their infertility never rests. It's like, yeah, but you have to rest within that. 
you know, you gotta, you gotta stop. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Mm. So, Miranda, any any sort of final final things you wanted to mention? I want to give you a chance to let my audience connect with you because I know there's I've had a lot of people message me wanting, um, you know, female fertility support, and I'm trying to handball them to you. As- <laughs> so, yeah. so. Okay, so I have my clinic in Albert Park called The Fertile Project and the handle is um, the underscore Fertile Project. No, hang on. The Fertile underscore Project. No, the underscore Fertile Project. Um, And then you can also find me at Dr. Miranda Miles, M-I-R-A-N-D-A-M-Y-L-E-S. and then I also have my The Donor Project podcast, which is really aimed, it's, a, it's aimed for couples, individuals, not only couples, um, any intending parent that is using um, donor eggs or donor sperm to create their families and just trying to normalise that conversation as well. Um, I think they're the main places to find me. Amazing. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'll make sure to yeah leave them linked in these show notes for those listening in. Um, but Miranda, thanks so much for you know finally finally coming on the show. Finally, we did it. <laughs> we should tell them we almost got stuck in Byron Bay together. Yeah. <laughs> we should. We should. <laughs> it's been lovely. Likewise. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.